0: This is a Romy Cast. This podcast was recorded in November of 2021. One, two thousand and twenty-one. Do you ever get tired of the Beatles? I play bass, uh, uh, and I play the drums, but I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar.
1: Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> hey, sorry, can, can we just have a little less guitar in here? air? Oh,
0: oh, let's like so move just Take three. The, oh, no,
1: no, no, no. Oh. the John finally got just after that, and we both of to do what we wanted to we do, what to do. it's yes, not bad that one. Keep that one, market fab.
0: Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me, why don't you? And let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore, peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest and discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com, com. romycast.com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far in the series. This is the ninth episode of Series 2, you can find the first 8 episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes from Series 1. And also, if you see fit, could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free? Any donation is much appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show hosting advertising some equipment it is a labor of love for me for sure but i ask that if you enjoy the show please consider a donation to support the show maybe just a couple of dollars per episode it's not that much just click on the donate button on the website if you would like to donate most people don't but to those who do thank you so much and along those lines some big shout outs to do here first of all to a big friend of the show chathan Lakshman in calgary uh he sent along a note with his donation saying this podcast makes my legs tired every time i go for a walk or a bike ride i start an episode and i can't bear to hit pause so i go for a few more laps <laughs> chathan happy to help out with your exercise regime my friend and uh hey thanks for the uh the generous donation you're a real pal Janet McDonald, thanks for your donation. Janet says, the second series is amazing. Janet, thanks a lot. And a big friend of the show and a guest, musician Jane Gowan with a generous donation. Jane, I'm supposed to pay you for being on the show, but thank you very much. Thank you one and all. And if you'd like to make a donation, I'll give you a shout out as well. Just visit the website, RomyCast.com. And also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. Uh, That won't cost you a thing, just a little bit of your time. And thanks. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That is Romanuk Paul. Uh, that is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. I usually do get back to people on uh, social. Uh, my guest today is a great one. He's a returning champion, a musician, and musicologist Mike Daly. Mike is a jobbing musician. He plays with a few bands, including Fraser. Day, and the Tom Waits Appreciation Congregation. Uh, I've seen both play, and they're both really, really good. You can catch those bands playing around Toronto and the greater Toronto area. Mike also lectures and researches. He's currently working on a book on the local music scene in Toronto during the 1950s and 60s. It was a pretty cool scene. Uh, If you go back and research it just a little bit, you can see that it was a scene that helped to shape the career of Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, and David Clayton Thomas of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, amongst others. Several meticulously researched online lectures are also available to purchase and view at Mike's website, which is MikeDailyMusic.com, that is MikeDailyMusic.com, including an eight-part series on the Beatles and their world. If you listen to this podcast, you might find that interesting. Uh, Also a pretty good one on the words and music of Neil Young. You can find Mike on Twitter, at MikeDaily8 is the handle. That is at MikeDaily and the number 8. You can also find him on Insta, at MikeDailyToronto is the handle there. Musicologist, musician, and Beatles fan, Mike Daly. Mike, thanks so much for
1: returning to the show and taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Thank you for having me. I, I love this album and I, I'm uh, excited to talk about it because I, while I get to talk about the Beatles a lot, I don't often get to delve into Lennon solo stuff, which is uh, huge for me. Well, I'm glad
0: you picked, uh, you know, I like talking about the Beatles, of course, but the solo stuff is interesting in its own right. And I'll, I'll tell you a little story and just get, get your reaction to it. So I was preparing for a couple of episodes of the podcast that I was recording uh, in, in a short period of time. Uh, Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps, two guests, wanted to talk about Abbey Road, so... I've listened to Abbey Road a million times, but of course, wanted to listen to it again, just to refresh my memory. And you want to talk about John Lennon's Walls and Bridges that we'll get into in a moment. So I listened to them back to back Abbey Road, followed by Walls and Bridges. And it was quite a contrast like, to me. It was like, oh, my God, Abbey Road is so amazing and I felt badly for Walls and Bridges because you know it's like the it's like the guy who uh, you know who has to open for the Who in a stadium, right? Nobody's there to see them. He was all right, but he's not going to be the Who. Uh, that's how I felt about Walls and Bridges. I mean, uh, not a fair comparison, though. Really, is it?
1: Well, you with Abbey Road, you have the the shared talents of all f- four Beatles. You've got uh, George Martin on deck. You have, uh, yeah, you have all of the good things that come out of the push and pull between those creative personalities. But, you know, Walls and Bridges, I think, maybe uh, deserves a re-listen and a rethink. Just because, you know, when I listened to it again the other day, and it's a record that I listened to a lot at a certain time in my life, and so it's really in there. But I was struck by its consistently high quality. It was produced by John Lennon. Mm-hmm. It's a very well-made album. The songs are all good songs. The performances are excellent. The production is good. And the songs, I think, are varied. I think it's often characterized as the so-called Lost Weekend record. I think it's a lot more than that. Yeah. And it's the last full Lennon album. So I think it has pride of place, um, just for that alone, because it's it's sort of his last solo statement, uh, mostly free of Yoko's influence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you look at Double Fantasy, and of course it's a forced bundling of Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> a very
0: uh, respectfully put, I'll, I'll, I'll say very. Uh, well, it's it, I, I found it it has. And I hadn't listened to it in a while. I found it had a definite 70s sort of pop sheen, which is fair enough because it was recorded in the mid-70s with the horns and, and just the way it sounds to me. But it sounded better than I remembered. Uh, like, it sounded good. And you're right, there are some great songs on there. And, and it's, it's going to be fun talking about them. Now, before we do that, I mean, I, I describe you when, when I was talking about your career. And, and in fact, you describe yourself as a musicologist. Mm -hmm. So just color that in a little bit. What does that mean?
1: Well, musicologist is a professional designation for somebody who has an advanced degree in uh, musicology, which is the study of music. um, It's history, theory, analysis, that sort of thing. And I have a PhD in ethnomusicology and musicology. So that's why I call myself a musicologist, but lots of people who don't have that training call themselves musicologists. So it's not like calling yourself a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> uh, it's a little it's a little looser out there. But anyway, that's why I use that term because I have that specialized training.
0: And you're also a, a, a great musician. I've seen you perform many times, a fantastic guitarist. Uh, if you're in the Toronto area and you ever, ever get a chance to see uh, Mike play uh, on his own or with his, his musical partner quite often, Alec Frazier, their band is Frazier Daily. I highly recommend you do. Uh, Now, that said, as you were gaining your expertise as a musicologist, as you were studying and so on, did that start to color the way you listen to music and the way that you play your music?
1: Of course. Yeah. Of course, absolutely, it has to. Anytime you become conscious of something, it's going to change what you're doing. Um, It's... It's funny to me, uh, you know, an album like this, because I got to know it before I was a musician. I really absorbed it before I was a musician. So it almost, it's almost not connected. I don't even hear it in that way. I only, I hear it with my pre-musician ears. Mm -hmm. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. So music I heard after that, I heard in a different way because I heard it more analytically. Cool, um, but yeah, of course. The more you learn about the nuts and bolts of things, the more technically you're going to conceive of it and and hear it, and you're going to be analytical towards it. And it's of course going to change the way that you make music as well as the way you listen. to
0: it. I'll never have that skill, but it must be interesting to listen to. Uh, you know, I'll just pick a random song of you know a Beatles song to listen to uh, some song that they've done and go ah. I see what they've done there. I see. I see why it makes you feel this way, or why it creates that mood, because they've uh, inverted the major fifth with the uh, or whatever. I if mean. only
1: it was that uh, straight ahead, though, because the effects of music on us and the connection of that to actual musical structures is is not um, a simple relation, and it's very personal, and it will change. Over time. So, um, a musical structure is going to hit you in a different way from everybody else, and it's going to hit you in a different way depending on when in your life you're hearing it and what's going on in your life. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: It's, it's such a touchstone. Uh, let me just give a little bit of context before we uh, we get into the record. So, 1973's Winding Down, and a quick peek at the UK music singles chart shows Ringo Starr's photograph at number seven, Paul McCartney and Wings, Helen Wheels is number 13, John Lennon's Mind Games was at number 26, so this is late 73. On the UK album charts, Ringo's at number two, Mind Games is at number nine, George Harrison is talking about a U.S. tour. Band on the Run is on the way to becoming a global number one record. Loads of speculation. This is high speculation time about a Beatles reunion as the calendar turns to 1974. There was a headline in the February issue of the Melody Maker that says right on the front page the Beatles are back together again. Mm-hmm. And to quote from that informed sources in New York suggest that the four of them are preparing a joint statement to be released in the next few days revealing their plans for a new Beatles album. Melody Maker understands that all four ex-Beatles have been in New York during the last weeks for legal talks.
1: Dewey defeats Truman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The war is over," <laughs> said Chamberlain. <laughs> Meanwhile, in reality, John Lennon had relocated to the west coast of the United States as far back as October of '73. This was the infamous lost weekend away from Yoko that we'll talk about. Uh, he left New York when he and Yoko decided to take a break in their relationship. In October of '73, Lennon and May Pang left New York for Los Angeles to promote Mind Games and decided to stay for a while, living at the homes of friends. While there, Lennon was inspired to embark on two recording projects, he wanted something to do. He wanted to make an album of the old rock and roll songs that inspired him to become a musician and to produce another artist as well. In December of 73, he collaborated with Phil Spector to record the oldies album, Rock and Roll. And these are the alcohol-fueled recording sessions that became legendary. Every musician in LA wanted to drop in and soon Lennon's drinking and Spector's erratic behavior caused the sessions to completely break down. And then Spector, who claimed that he was in a car accident, took the tapes, became unreachable. That project was at a standstill in cement. So then, in March of 74, John starts producing Harry Nilsson's album Pussycats at Burbank Studios in California. And John would later say of the sessions that Harry had lost his voice and he didn't tell me. The main thing that was we had a lot of fun. There was Keith Moon, Harry, Ringo and me living together in a house and we had some moments. Color that in. (laughs) This was around the time of a couple of now infamous incidents at the Troubadour Club in L.A., the most notable of which took place on March 12, 1974. Lennon and Harry Nilsson went to see the Smothers Brothers. Uh, They were both hammered. Lennon was heckling the Smothers Brothers. He was eventually tossed out. Not before he gets into a scrap with the Smothers Brothers manager, a guy named Ken Fritz. Punches are thrown. Lennon errantly hits a waitress when he's throwing up. It's a shit show, okay, is is, is what we would say in in modern parlance. So sometime around April 27th, John and May Pang leave LA and head back to New York City, where they take up residence at the beautiful Pierre Hotel, uh, right there on Fifth Avenue, overlooking Central Park. Gorgeous place. They settle back in. Lennon resumes work on Pussycats with Harry Nilsson at the record plant in New York. He also supposedly works on a session with Mick Jagger at the record plant, which produces the song uh, please don't ever change uh, cover of a Joffan and king uh, classic that the beatles also used to perform i could find no record of that song ever being released or any mention of the session other than in a book by a guy called keith badman called the beatles after the breakup and it's i've found it to be slightly unreliable sometimes in its research so specter and the oldies album are in limbo, Lennon wants to record something. In the background, he's continuing his legal battles with the U.S. government over his immigration problems. So on or about June 17, 1974, Lennon heads into the record plant located at 324 West 44th Street and he starts work on the album we're going to talk about today, Walls and Bridges. So in New York, Lennon instigated a very professional work ethic, unlike California, demanding that his session musicians work from noon to 10, five days a week, Drugs and Alcohol kept away from the studio, Record Plan East, and Lennon enjoyed a type of creative surge he hadn't known for uh, many months. Uh, The band spent a couple of days rehearsing and arranging the songs. Several of the recordings later appeared on uh, Posthumous Collections, Men Love Avenue, and the John Lennon Anthology. Lennon produced the recordings, but uh, took help from, uh, I believe it's pronounced Roy Sakala and Jimmy...
1: I, Iovine.
0: Iovine, Thank you. Uh, rhymes with iodine. Jimmy Iovine, a legendary producer, went on to be. The sessions run until August 22nd. A Cutting Master is prepared in the 3rd. The album comes out September 26th, uh, 1974 in the U.S. and Canada. October the 4th in the U.K. Lennon's fifth solo studio album. It was, as uh, as Mike talked about, the last album of original material until 1980's Double Fantasy. The record hit number one on the U.S. Billboard charts. It was number one in Canada on the RPM chart, peaked at six on the U.K. album chart. As per Chartmasters.org, Walls and Bridges has sold 2.3 million physical copies worldwide. That ranks it fifth in terms of sales of his eight original albums, just ahead of Mind Games with about two million in global sales, and below Rock and Roll, um, which sold about two point eight. Number one, by the way, would you take a take a wild guess? his number one seller? Imagine Double Fantasy.
1: Oh, yes, yeah,
0: nine point nine million physical copies. Um, the most streamed track from the album is <laughs> Number Nine Dream, hmm. six point two million. Followed by Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Sure. So there you go. Uh, we are all set to tear into it, and
1: uh, uh, yeah, the um, if I could add some some other points do. to uh, to that too. So the uh, the breakup with Yoko, it's you know they characterized it later as the as the lost weekend, which was which was absolutely a, a media managed um, construction by by John and Yoko, and how they wanted to. Uh, characterized these 18 months when they were apart. And it's often, it was said by them that Yoko kicked John out, but it appears that it was much more of a mutual uh, s- separation than they later characterized after they got back together. May Pang was John's girlfriend for those 18 months, and they kept in touch right up until his death um and uh, she has written a book, by the way. She wrote a book in the 80s, which I haven't read, but I've heard it's excellent, Loving John.
0: I haven't read that either. I mean,
1: yeah, I was it's supposed to be really good. Uh, she was around 10 years younger, younger than John, so she was about 23 at the time. He was, you know, 34. And uh, so he goes and lives with Harry Nielsen and uh, Ringo and Keith Moon. Can you imagine that house? I mean, Ringo was a raging al- alcoholic by this point, and we know about the other guys. And, you know, I find it so um, disingenuous that John says, I, I was surprised that Harry Nielsen had lost his voice. He did it. That, the, the way Harry Nielsen lost the voice was in a screaming contest with John.
0: L- literally a screaming a contest. A screaming
1: contest. yes. And John, of course, can out scream anybody <laughs> from a, he had all that primal scream practice, you know, from, uh, with Yoko and, uh, and Harry Nielsen, you know, blew out his vocal cords and he, that beautiful voice that you hear on one or, you know, uh, those, those great early Harry Nielsen records is gone on Pussycats. I listened to that the other day and, uh, it's he. He sounds actually a lot like John Lennon mm. on on the record, but his voice is very rough. I
0: mean, there's a podcast. There, it's just. I mean, if uh, I mean, what a voice, you know, for people who aren't familiar with Harry Nelson. Uh, look him up on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you stream. And just, you know, me and my arrow, mm. uh, everybody's talking at me. Yeah. Uh, like just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful voice.
1: But but John Lennon really did a number on Harry Nilsson, I'll say, his vo- vocally. And he never got it back, really.
0: What did you think of Pussycats? Uh,
1: I thought it was okay. It, it reminded me a lot of the rock and roll album because it, it was so many remix uh, remakes of old hits. And something interesting, actually, if you listen to the version of Many Rivers to Cross that starts Pussycats, there are musical elements in there that were lifted um, almost verbatim for Number Nine Dream. So if you listen to it, there's a real... Similarity, John repurposed a lot of the uh, musical arrangement of that song for his own "Number Nine Dream" I think on I, Walls and Bridges. I might have that in my notes, but we'll get we'll get to that. <laughs> uh,
0: so let's get it out of the vinyl or uh, out of the CD jacket. Take your pick, and we'll put it on side one, cut one, and the album opener, "Going Down on Love."
1: Got to get down, down on my knees. Got to get down. On so I have to tell you that I discovered this album when I was 12 years old and it was in the wake of John's murder so in the year 1981 everything that that e- ever had anything to do with the Beatles or John Lennon, was re-released and made suddenly available. So I was uh, growing up in Burlington, Ontario at that time, and we had the Mall Record Store. And before John's death, they had, you know, five or six Beatles albums. They didn't have any John Lennon album. You know, it was like that. Um, And suddenly everything was available again. And so I picked up that album when I was... 12 in 1981 and that's when I really absorbed it in those years when I was 12 13 and uh, by the end of that year I started playing the guitar in when I was 12 years old I didn't know what going down meant <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Whatever are you talking about, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) So I remember hearing this song, uh, what's he even talking about? But it's certainly, you know, in retrospect, it's a provocative opener, isn't it? Got to get down, down on my knees. Got to get down, going down on love. It sets up the scenario of this sort of abject uh, emotional state of The Lost Weekend, doesn't it? It does. I think it's a big reason that people hear this album in, in the context of, of, again, the so-called Lost Weekend, the phrase they borrowed from F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and, and then other lyrics, right? When the real thing goes wrong and you can't get it on and your love she is gone and you got to carry on. So, I mean, that's Lost Weekend separated from Yoko right there, I would think.
1: Right. And let's, let's d- d- just quickly deconstruct the Lost Weekend narrative further by saying that this was probably the most creative time in John's post Beatles life it's a time when he reconnected not only with Paul as I'm sure we'll talk about that and the you know the the they did get close to re- a reunion uh, around this time uh, but also that he reconnected with his son Julian he had been b- pretty out of touch with his son um, for the last few years and Yoko was not encouraging of him seeing his son with Cynthia and May Pang reconnected the two of them and they spent more time together in that in that year of 1974 than probably they'd ever spent together. You know, there were a lot of positives in this separation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and of course, yeah, you referred to it that he did see McCartney. Yes. Um and they you know, they jammed together on the the in the snoring infamous or famous yeah yeah which <laughs> I think it was. it's McCartney Stevie Wonder yeah. John Lennon uh and it's just a have you you've heard it I
1: I unfortunately I've heard it, it yeah it's
0: just a shambles oh it's terrible <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of stone drunk people making music it's terrible but, music.
1: but you know there are there apparently Paul and John were in touch the whole time like 72 even when John was singing how do you sleep you know this this uh, searing takedown of Paul on Imagine, they were having phone calls and they were they were buddies. They were in touch. So, what even do we know?
0: <laughs> uh, well, well, we'll be waiting for the I guess the last trilogy of the last part of Mark Lewison's book trilogy. I don't want to want if he'll go into their post-Beatles. He lives.
1: has said that he, he will not.
0: He will. He's going to stop at.
1: Yeah, uh, but um, others have. Others have really dug into this stuff. Uh,
0: the song was, uh, it was demoed. Uh, when he demoed it, it was recorded on both acoustic and, and piano. Uh, by the time he recorded it in the studio, it's, it's, a, it's much more sprightly. Um, it, it certainly has a, a little bit more pop, I think, okay, than hold, the demo does. Don't <laughs> go da-da-dum. We're having enough, enough trouble, trouble, you know, just, just keeping keep the rhythm without And en- I don't want anything, anything other than strict four in the bar unless it's written. Okay, the jumps I mean, on the letter the A's range. and the breaks. You don't want those now? Yeah, I do want them. I just don't want any fills from the guitars or anybody. Just play what you were playing and no da da or chaka da da and saka da We have enough of that going on. All right. Just hold it to four and no. a six. Six. Take six. Two. This is it. One, two, three,
1: four. Got to get down, down on my knees.
0: Let's talk a bit about the band here, Mike, just before we go any further. So I've... I've got what I could find, and this is just from the album jacket. So you've got Lennon, uh, Elton John, which we'll talk about makes a cameo appearance on vocals and piano. But you've got in the core band, you have Nicky Hopkins, mm-hmm. the late n- legendary piano player who played with the Beatles Yeah, uh, at one point. He plays uh, on Revolution. I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse Ed Davis.
1: Yes, uh, guitarist. Uh, great guitarist. guitarist.
0: Uh, Eddie Matteau. Uh play some acoustic guitar.
1: Mm, yeah. Ken Asher on uh, on keys.
0: Yeah, keys, electric piano, uh, clavinet, mellotron.
1: Yeah, he's the secret weapon of this album, Ken Asher. You think? Yeah, much more of a a jazz musician. Um and and you listen to things like Bless You and it's The jazziness of those Mm. things and all of the layers of Mellotron and synthesizers, that's Ken Asher.
0: His old Hamburg buddy, Klaus Mm Vorman, who plays bass, also Klaus with him throughout his solo career, had played on John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, Imagine, and so on. Arthur Jenkins, percussionist. Mm -hmm. uh, The great Jim Keltner. On drums, yep, uh, and then various horn players. Yep. Bobby Keys,
1: yep, Bobby Keys on sax and a f- five-piece horn section. Uh,
0: and and Bobby Keys is the only name I recognized. Yeah, uh, S- Steve Medeo, Howard Johnson, Ron Apria, Frank Vicari were the other horn players.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, studio players, and they were doing they were playing not from written arrangements. By the way, I found out that they, it was head arrangements. Kind of like the uh, horn sections on Rolling Stones records, where in the studio, they're just making up, okay, you play the B-flat, you play the E-flat, you play the G, let's go. And they're working up, and they're doing it in their heads. They're working up the arrangements. They're not reading.
0: Well, you played with uh, the late Jeff Healy, among others, some other very technically skilled musicians during your career. Now. You touched on it a bit, but tell me what separates a good player from a great player.
1: A great player makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's no one thing, you know, or it's not even a set of things. It's it's that feeling of being carried along and it's just something you know when you, when you hear it. It helps if they sound like if they sound effortless in what they're doing, like it sounds like they're not on the edge of their abilities. And they're like somebody like Jeff. I, I think of, a, he was somebody who had an incredible mind and the he would come up with a musical gesture and he had the physical technique to be able to realize that gesture no matter what it was. And so knowing that, he could, he would go for anything. So he was absolutely... Um, fearless in his guitar playing. And there was humor, there was go for the throat aggressiveness in it. There was tenderness, there was chaos. There was all of the colors, right? It's like it's like a beautiful painting, you know, It's gotta it's gotta hit you in all the places and then it becomes overwhelming and you just have to, you have to bow in respect you know that to me is what a great musician is it's it's when the pieces fit together and and you can see the vision you know the musical vision is realized you can you can take it in and you can sort of reconstruct and that's you know when they talk about a musician speaking to you that's what i think of it as like they they've got they've got an idea they execute it in a way that gets it across and then you hear it, and you can see what they're doing.
0: Is he the greatest you've ever played with?
1: Yes. Yeah. He's the he's the greatest musician I've ever been in proximity with.
0: An amazing guitar player. Yeah. Uh, so we let's move to cut two. And uh, speaking of yeah. uh, amazing personalities, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the great Elton John makes an appearance on cut two. Whatever gets you through the night, the yeah. hit, the hit. <laughs>
1: A couple of really good alliances that John made in this period, the other being David Bowie with fame. And uh, yeah, Elton, of course, an admirer, as we all are, of the Beatles and of John, and and those two hit it off and uh, began working together on this, this album. Uh, whatever gets you through the night, though, as a song, you know, it's it's his last... Um, It's his only solo number one in the U.S., right? A a very catchy song, gangbusters out the gate, very funky at a time when funk and disco was really on the rise in the mainstream on the charts. John was very... You mentioned that this is kind of a 70s-sounding album, and John was very aware of pop trends, and he listened to what was going on. He was interested. Right up until his death, he was interested in what was going on around him, and he... And look, you mentioned how the Beatles, all four Beatles, were really on the charts. They were very present in the mainstream of popular music. And so John kept up. He wasn't interested in being a nostalgia act. And he was listening to all the sort of disco. We think of 1973, 1974, not as the disco era. But if you look at the charts, there was a lot of what we would later call disco coming up on the charts. You know that the sort of Atlantic rhythm section, the sound of Philadelphia, that those sorts of things, um, that sort of rhythm and blues soul conception was really funky. And this is a very funky song with that huge Bobby Keys saxophone yeah, yeah, yeah. solo. Uh, but the lyrics are just a bit of nonsense. I mean, it's this is um, what John doing his cut-up method. Like it's just a bunch of phrases. I don't really see a thread in this one that we see in some of the other songs.
0: You can hear a lot of the demos, or a few of them, or an edit of the demos on the John Lennon Anthology box set. Um, one, of the, one of the observations I read says, uh, the melody bore a resemblance to one of his earlier songs. He segued into a brief rendition of Jealous Guy. Uh, you can hear an edit of that.
1: Oh, yeah. da 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 wow. that, that move. Yeah.
0: Your money all
1: your life. All right.
0: I was dreaming of the pain, and my heart bad. Is,
1: is similar to Jealous Guy, which, of course, is child of nature from uh, Rishikesh. Uh,
0: The melody and rhythm inspired by George McRae's Rock Your Baby.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, there you go. That's exactly what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Uh, He got the idea for the song. Uh, This is from uh, May Pang in an interview that she did with the Radio Times. At night, he, Lennon, loved to channel surf and he would pick up phrases from all the shows. One time, he was watching Reverend Ike, a famous black evangelist who was saying, let me tell you guys, it doesn't matter. It's whatever gets you through the night. Mm John loved it and said, I've got to write it down or I'll forget it. And he always kept a pad and pen by the bed. And that was the beginning of whatever gets you through the night, according to May Pang. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're right in terms of the number one. Harrison had a number one in the USA with My Sweet Lord back in 70. Uh, McCartney with Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey in 71. Uh, Ringo with Photograph in 73. And Lennon was on the outside and
1: what's the what's the outlier in that list Uncle Albert what what a that went to number one that of all the things that McCartney put out in the 70s a lot of good stuff that I love
0: that song okay
1: this is where the this is where the fight
0: the fight begins it's 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 like a classic.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, maybe not that part.
0: Well, it's the usual McCartney grandma music. That's
1: <laughs> John. That's John would it.
0: All right. Well, when, you, when you do a podcast about McCartney <laughs> albums, I'll come on and we can uh, we can go through it. Um, now, it, in terms of Elton John's involvement. Uh, yeah. Elton says this, uh, I was fiddling about one night and Elton John walked in with Tony King of Apple. You know, we're all good friends. And the next minute, Elton said, say, can I put a bit of piano on that? And I said, sure, love it. He zapped in. I was amazed at his ability. I knew him, but I'd never seen him play. A fine musician, a great piano player. I was really pleasantly surprised at the way he could get in on such a loose track and add to it and keep up with the rhythm changes, obviously, because it doesn't keep the same rhythm and then he sang with me we had a great time
1: mm-hmm. yeah elton was a studio musician i mean in his early days he did those sound alike records and he was a journeyman he had those skills he wasn't he wasn't uh, someone who could only play his own music you know he he could he could hang with a band bobby
0: keys the great sax solo that you mentioned yes um now do you want to tell the story about What happened as a result of this song reaching number one? The little bet John and Elton, or sorry, yeah, John and Elton had?
1: Oh, well, I know that it leads to John's last public performance at Madison Square Garden, right? And that's in 75, where John gets up and um, performs. I saw her standing there, of all things, with Elton, and uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I think I, I have this record. I have a record of this somewhere. Yeah,
0: it, it, uh, the story, according to John, uh, from an interview we did in 1980, Elton sang on a single that turned out to be a cut from Walls and Bridges, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. He sang harmony on it, and he did a damn good job. So I sort of half-heartedly promised that if Whatever Gets You Through the Night became number one which I had no reason to expect, I'd do Madison Square Garden with him. So one day, Elton called and said, "Uh, remember when you promised? It wasn't like I promised some agent or something, so I was suddenly stuck. I had to go on stage in the middle of nothing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and he he was uh, quite plagued by stage fright in these sort of post-66 live appearances, right? Yeah. The famous Toronto throwing up before going on at Varsity Stadium, but... Yeah, he really, uh, he really get nervous about it. And, you know, the the crowd goes insane when they bring out John Lennon.
0: It, it's for you can hear the, uh, you can hear whatever gets you through the night. It's a bonus track on the, uh, I actually have it on the, the the 05 CD reissue of Walls and Bridges. And um, you can get the whole concert. I can't remember where it is, but it was, it's available out there. Yeah. Uh, and you can hear him. And you're right. You hear the crowd just goes bananas. Serious
1: Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving's are joyous occasions, We thought we'd make tonight a little bit of a joyous occasion uh, by inviting someone up with us onto stage. And
0: uh, I'm sure we will be no stranger to anybody in the audience, but I say it's our great privilege and your great privilege to see and hear Mr. John Lennon. was uh, November 28th, 1974 is the date oh, i have Oh
1: 74 that, it was okay yeah, so it was that same year That's the date i have Yeah cuz that was cuz Yoko was in the audience And then they got together And then after, they got yeah, together yeah. afterwards Yeah that's what the she went backstage and he looked terrible and i knew he needed me and yeah. and then she was like okay yeah. you can come back the narrative. The narrative. The, the narrative. Yeah, we all have our stories. Uh, you old cynic, you! <laughs> yeah. All right,
0: let's go to cut three, side one, and uh, beautiful. I like this. It's uh,
1: oh, co-write with Nielsen. Old dirt road. Again, the lyrics sound like the cut-up method to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just sounds like uh, just phrases thrown together. Kind of like I dig a pony, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not very, it's just uh, ain't no people on the old dirt road, tarred and feathered on the old dirt road, trying to shovel smoke with a pitchfork in the wind. You know, it's just fun little phrases stitched together. But beautiful. And you know, I, I love the uh, bridge of this song. Um, Lazing through the Deadwood on a hot summer day, or something through the deadwood on a hot summer day. I saw a human being lazy boning out in the hay. I said, "Hey, Mr. Human, can you rain bank or too?" He said, "I guess it's okay. It's just the only thing we need is water." And then he quotes, "Cool, clear water." Yeah. from that old cowboy song, The Old Sons of the Pioneers' is, Cool Water. Is that?
0: I didn't know that's where it was
1: from. Well, he actually quotes the melody. Cool. Clear. It's straight from the song.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, Roy Rogers.
0: That's a good That is a first all-star team trivial fact. I like that. <laughs> That's really good.
1: Yeah, I love this song with the strings, and um, and I think it's synthesized strings on this. Can you
0: hear... I listened to it a couple of times. I can't hear Harry Nelson on there.
1: Well, there is a harmony vocal, but is it Harry or is it John?
0: It sounds like John doubled to me, or not dou- singing with himself. Yeah, uh, so,
1: Yeah, it does to me too, but I'd have to to listen again. And I love the guitar in this. The Jesse, Jesse Ed Davis, the Wawa, kind of uh, a George surrogate. You know, he's sounding like George was sounding in these days, like with the, that Wawa wah uh, deal.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, Harry Nelson liked the song. He recorded his own version uh, in 1979. It was released in the UK and Japan uh, on Flash Harry, which was his final album. So he did a version. Now, Harry Nilsson in his day, we alluded to it, one of the great male vocalists out there. Big hits in the 70s, Everybody's Talking Without You, uh, the album Nilsson Schmilson. You've done an online lecture series, one of several greatly researched lectures that you do called The 1970s in 70s Songs. Does Harry rate on that list because of his vocal ability?
1: Uh, no, you know that that list of 70 songs, and I did one with the 60s, 60, 60 songs as well. I I really went with kind of the biggest hits of each year, for the most part, with a few outliers. And you know, there's so much music that came out then. I was trying to represent uh, kind of the mainstream in that of North American pop music in those days. So Harry does not show up on that on that list for me
0: if you gave it a rethink would he maybe sneak in
1: yeah if I was doing what I thought was the best music of the 70s oh okay because I didn't do that I have like Afternoon Delight and stuff like oh. that on there I have some <laughs> real crap
0: Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey no in there. but there
1: is a Paul on there I think it's uh, Silly Love Songs okay yeah that's what makes that. I think that's my yeah. Paul song
0: yeah fair, fair enough I'll take a few Silly Love Songs why not Uh, You can find all of Mike's very well-researched and presented video series, by the way, at his website, MikeDailyMusic.com. Just want to take one moment here uh, to ask a favor of you, dear listener. If you're enjoying this podcast, and I hope you are, can you please make a donation to support the production costs of the podcast? Just head to the website, RomyCast.com, and click on the Support the Walrus button. I'll give you a shout-out in the the next episode. Most people don't donate but I like to ask and if you do I really really do appreciate it so thanks. Uh, while you're at my webpage RomyCast.com, you can also navigate to the page Hire Paul. That's a great idea he said. Uh, Ever thought of a promotional podcast for your next album release or tour or book or art exhibition? Whatever the case I'm your guy. I'm an experienced podcast producer who loves the arts And we'll work with you to produce a podcast that will showcase your talent as well as it can be showcased. If you're interested, you can get in touch via the website and we will go from there. Uh, And also at the website, you can find each and every episode of the Walrus Was Paul series. The best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you get your podcasts and you will be notified whenever a new episode. Drops. So let's get back to uh, John Lennon's "Walls and Bridges." The next cut on side one, and it is one that really
1: smokes. It's cut four. What you got? What you got? Some some more hard funk um, with a screaming vocal. top of his range, winning the screaming contest against Harry Nielsen. Another song of regret. And he references Little Richard's Rip It Up, which of course he record, he had just recorded um, on uh, rock and roll. In the lyrics he references, Saturday Night and I Gotta Rip It Up.
0: Sort of a slick funk performance. Um... One of the research things that I read to your earlier point, Lennon loved 1970s disco and funk Mm -hmm. and instructed his New York City session musicians to recreate those styles for this song.
1: Yeah. Well, it is. It's a hard funk song. There's a lot of funk on this album.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, He'd recorded some uh, demos of this in the early summer of 74 on an acoustic. And at that stage, it was more of a rockabilly song. You don't know what you've got, you 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 got Until you lose it You don't know what you got Until you lose it You don't know what you got Until
1: you lose it Baby, baby, baby Give me one more chance Um, kind of
0: had a Carl Perkins feel to it and then turned into, you know, just a complete left-hand turn. Yeah,
1: good yeah. track. Yeah, it's not, I, I, I'd say this song and Surprise, Surprise are to me the two weakest tracks on, are the ones that I don't love hearing as much as some of the others, mm-hmm. but I'm a softie. I like the ballads and things like that. And this is pretty, it's pretty abrasive. You know, just getting yelled at for four minutes is not my idea of a good time <laughs> most, the, most the time. Not a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not a heavy no, metal fan no, for no, that okay. reason. Okay, got yeah. it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so cut five on side one and uh, a song that, uh, going by your statement, uh, you probably like. Oh, bless I, you. Bless oh, you. It's,
1: this, this to me is absolutely my favorite song on the album. Uh, featuring heavily the Ken Asher on Jazzy Rhodes' electric piano. Just gorgeous Of the end of the relationship it's uh it's a song where he's kind of saying goodbye to yoko and you know i assume that he's speaking from his personal experience because he seemed to always speak from his personal experience in his songs he's always talking about himself and um you know that he's letting her go that he's um even the bridge some people say it's over now that we've spread our wings But we know better, darling, the hollow ring is only last year's echo. It's heartbreaking, but beautiful.
0: Uh, Shortly after the release of the album, Lennon described it as the best song in the
1: album. There you go, me and John.
0: As a song, I think it's the best piece of work on the album, although I worked harder on some of the other tracks. In retrospect, it seems to be the best track to me. Uh, And he says, in a way, it's about Yoko and I. And in a way, it's about a lot of couples or all of us who go through that, whatever it's called, love experience. You know, the way love changes, which is one of the surprises of life that we all find out. That it doesn't remain exactly the same all the time, although it's still love.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that the love goes on, but that maybe the relationship doesn't.
0: Yeah, interesting sentiment.
1: Yeah, it hit me right in the feels when I was 12. It did, oh, yeah, I felt it so much, you know. It was, you know, when you're, especially when I was younger, songs would be kind of surrogates for my own feelings. Oh, yeah. And I'd sort of sing them in my head, and it was a way of, like, working through my own budding emotional feelings, you know? And that, that, this song was a, was that for me.
0: Oh, it's that, that, that's, I mean, we could go Even down. Even though that. I
1: hadn't been divorced yet. No, at no. that
0: point. <laughs> you, we could go down that, not your divorce, we could go down <laughs> that, that rabbit hole, but I mean, yeah. that's, that's music, right? Especially, yeah. I mean, I think, throughout your life but especially when you're younger you listen, I remember listening to uh, Woman by John Lennon and it was around the time I was breaking up with my high school sweetheart and I remember writing the lyrics from that song of course you did in longhand yeah. on a card that I sent to oh, her
1: like it's it, that's what music does
0: that's what music does
1: yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. and uh, yeah so this one <laughs>
0: and Susan if you're listening I've never forgiven you there you
1: go <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was you.
0: <laughs> I'm
1: sure, it was all your fault.
0: <laughs> um, last cut on side one, and uh, it's called "Scared."
1: Plastigalno band, right? That that album, like a real. Even with having this, the uh, kind of found sound at the beginning, it reminded me of Mother. How Mother starts with the slow down church bells. Yes. Here we start with the howling wolf, you know, and then, um, yeah, it, this this is a song that if you take the lyrics at face value, it's probably his most um, raw confessional. Song of his um, damaged emotional state. Yep. Which I believe that he was. I believe that he was a a traumatized, um, emotionally damaged person who constantly self-medicated, who never really got the help he needed in his lifetime. Maybe if he had lived long enough, he would have been able to sort through his um, uh, his... Uh, emotional life, but uh, the combinations of the death of his, you know, of, of his mother, of uh, his friend Stuart Sutcliffe, you know, of the of the uh, trauma of the of grief of those losses, um, of um, his disjointed family life in his childhood, and uh, that was something that he never really worked through. And I this to me, this song to me, which nobody really even cites. It's just sort of a forgotten album cut. Uh, I think this is the the, the lyrics, if you just l- look at them on paper, is the most cogent statement of his um, damaged psyche.
0: Well, take away the string and brass overdubs and you could drop this on to John Lennon Plastic Ono Band and it would, wouldn't miss a beat. Absolutely. Uh, like it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And he knew, he, he had that, he saw the irony of him being identified with love and peace and being, you know, kind of a, a violent, jealous, um, you know, a very deeply hurt person.
0: And it was a different time, too, when he, you know, when he when he grew up, it was uh, still very much stiff upper lip.
1: Especially if you were supposed to be a hard man from Liverpool,
0: and you had to be. Uh, yeah, just all I've read about the Beatles, including the the brilliant Mark Lewison book, um, but it, you know, they, they didn't exactly live in the slums. But uh, in fact, they had quite nice middle class upbringing. Especially John, uh, middle class by the British definition of middle class. But you still had to be a hard ass if you were going to survive in that adolescent you, you world. You had
1: to be handy as they said. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You had to be able to defend yourself.
0: Yep, absolutely. And,
1: and you couldn't show any weakness or you would just get crushed.
0: Yeah, Yep, yeah, Stiff upper lip. Yeah. Like very, very English. I'd say British, but English specifically uh, in my experience. Um, now Lennon at times, great confessional singer songwriter. And we've, we've talked a bit about that, but not a patch on m- my favorite. I think maybe the greatest of all Joni Mitchell, mm. uh, very su-
1: different kind of confessions.
0: Absolutely. Um, But she's the subject of another one of your online lectures, uh, in particular, the album Blue, which just celebrated its 50th, 50th anniversary last year. What is it, do you think, that allows people like Lennon or Joni to mine that personal vein so much better
1: than others do? Bravery. Courage. I think courage to say it courage to not do the easy thing and that is to distance yourself from what you're saying in your in your lyrics. I think um, both of them felt committed to tell the truth and they stuck to it and it's you know, I've written songs and it's easy to lose your nerve where you start to say the truth and then you you couch it in some way or you, you do a little faint to the left or to the right, you know? And I, th- I think it's courage that, that they um, saw it through, but also that they had the craft to make it so that it wasn't terrible because it's easy for that type of thing to be awful, as we've seen, right? It's one of these things like, you know, they say um, John Coltrane was a genius, but he inspired a ton of boring music. You know, by lesser imitators, and in the same way, Joni Mitchell inspired a lot of boring music of of people who were who didn't have her chops, who were trying to be confessional, and it's just
0: embarrassing. I, I just I, I I should do a podcast on. I think she is the greatest it, it, when you factor in her lyrics, her phrasing, the way she sings, uh, and then. Never mind the, the the complex tunings and the jazz influences and her playing. I mean, I, I, absolute genius, and I, it's a great regret I never got to see her play.
1: Yeah, you'll you'll never get an argument from, from me on that about Joni. I saw her once opening for Bob Dylan. Can you imagine
0: seeing her back? I mean, she's releasing her archive collection now, but mm-hmm. back in the you know in the '60s, playing in a a small venue, just her and her guitar.
1: How about at the Half Beat Coffee House in Toronto? which she played in October 64, and that's just come out on her archives. Wow. And she's doing all old folk songs, no originals in that, in that set. She wasn't really writing yet. Man. Yeah, I'm writing about that because I'm working on my Yorkville book, and, and a big part of it is Joni's time in Yorkville.
0: And for, and for those of you who uh, you know listening from somewhere other than Toronto and Canada, Yorkville was like the cool music area of It was, Toronto.
1: yeah, the in the 60s it was... It was a major entertainment district in Toronto, but uh, mostly not bars. It was coffee, unlicensed coffee houses. And so it was folk and jazz, and then it switches over to R&B and rock. And it had a huge um, hand in the careers of Neil Young, Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, John Kay, and Steppenwolf, David Clayton Thomas and more.
0: Yeah, that is going to be a very cool book when it uh, sees the light of day. We're gonna take a pause for now. And that is it for side one of John Lennon's Walls and Bridges. Uh, Mike, I'll see you for the next episode yeah, yeah, when we great. will look at side two of this classic Lennon solo record. In the meantime, dear listener, uh, always happy to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the podcast episode page, which you'll find on my website, romicast.com. And you can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is Romanuk Paul. There is also a Facebook page. Just do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page, and I'll get back to you. You can visit Mike Daly at his webpage, MikeDalymusic.com, and uh, he will be back in the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast when we look at side two of the album. However, that is it for this edition. Thanks for listening. So long for now.
1: Get tired of it.